Hey, hey, it's Conrad Thompson, and you're listening to 83 Weeks with Eric Bischoff. Eric, what's going on, man? How are you? Oh, Mrs. B and I are just uh, sitting around our corporate apartment here, uh, courtesy of WWE, and uh, planning our trip back to Wyoming. So kind of having an enjoyable road trip planning morning with a cup of coffee, a little little morning news. It's all good. Well, of course, there is a lot to talk about. You have been the talk of the wrestling world, and we're going to give everybody what they're looking for. And that's a conversation about Scott Hall and WCW. Uh, this is a, a topic that I thought we could get done in one episode. This is looking more and more like this might be a, a two or three parter. I, I kind of forget how much history Scott Hall had in WCW, but I'm curious because I know you sort of cut your teeth in the AWA. Did you ever run into Scott in the AWA? I did not. Um, I was a fan, you know, before I got into the wrestling business, uh, before I started working for Vern in 1987, I believe. Uh, so I was a, 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 I get, you know, as I think happens with people, you know, when you're really young, you know, you, you get into professional wrestling, like when you're in your, you know, adolescence ages, you know, eight, 10, 12 years old. And then as you get interested in, other things as you begin to mature and, and your lifestyle changes, you kind of lose touch a little bit, but I, I kind of found myself getting back into the, you know, being interested in wrestling again around the time that Scott Hall was really, um, making a name for himself along with Kurt Henning in the AWA. But to answer your question, we never crossed paths professionally, but, um, I became very familiar with Scott as a talent in the AWA during his time, uh, in Minneapolis and his time working for Vern. It's sort of interesting because Scott Hall comes into WCW in 1991, as do you, uh, Scott would get a, a tryout, uh, at a, um, dark match at a television taping. He's going to be in as the diamond stud and he's going to be managed by diamond Dallas page, which is sort of interesting that all these years later. Those guys are still associated. Uh, Meltzer would write, uh, he worked like Scott Hall, although he did a nice version of the power bomb as the finisher, which got a good reaction. And then fast forward a couple of weeks and he's going to be back on the shows uh, in dark matches. And then finally, at the end of the month, he would make his television debut and diamond Dallas page is going to find him a valet from the audience. When do you remember first seeing the diamond stud character? Not until I got into to WCW, really. I, I hadn't been watching a lot of WCW before I was interviewed to to uh, to, to join them. Uh, so I, you know, obviously I knew Scott Hall, but I wasn't uh, familiar at all with the Diamond Stud character until I got to WCW. I think you actually debut a couple of months after Scott in like July of 1991, and he's going to be working the mid card matches with with guys like Tom Zink. Uh, he's not quite the superstar that we're going to come to know Scott Hall to be. Did you have any interaction with him? I know you've always joked that you were a C squad announcer in 91, but did you have any interaction with Scott in 91 since you both were uh Minnesota boys a little bit? Yeah. I mean, Scott was really a Florida guy, uh, 
all the way through, but because he had spent a lot of time in Minneapolis, and we we just knew a lot of the same people. We we weren't friendly. I mean, we were friendly. We weren't close friends. Uh, I think I probably went out after the shows with Scott. You know, maybe once or twice in in a in a group. You know, not individually, not just he and I, but as a part of a group, we probably sat down and had a couple cocktails after the show together. You know, a handful of times, but didn't really. Um, you know, didn't interact a lot uh, in a one-on-one kind of way. Well, he probably needed, uh, all the backup he could get. I mean, he's, he's pushed pretty prominently, you know, for a guy who debuts in late May, he's in sort of the main attraction, uh, for October's Halloween havoc pay-per-view. It's the chamber of horrors in Chattanooga where famously Abdul, the butcher was electrocuted. Is that a, uh, a career highlight for you, Eric, the electrocution of abdul the butcher in not a career highlight it does stand <laughs> out though vividly in my in my mind as uh one of the more interesting things i had seen up until that point you know again coming from the awa where even with a lot of the um kind of gimmicky type matches Vern was putting on towards the end of the awa the team challenge series and things like that um this was way over the top to me. I had never seen anything like it, never heard of anything like it. Uh, it was a Dusty Rhodes thing. You know, Dusty was was excited about it. And I was just at that point really beginning to get to know Dusty. And, you know, Dusty was, say what you want about Dusty. And, and a lot of people look back at Dusty now and, of course, hold him in very high regard, which he obviously deserves. Uh, but Dusty did a lot of finishes and came up with a lot of ideas that were controversial at the time and all, didn't always have a lot of support. But what I really admired about Dusty and, and grew to really, um, I, I don't want to say he mentored me in any way, shape or form, but you know, one of the things that I, I realized in a guy like Dusty is that you're going to come up with ideas that are out of the box that are big, that are crazy on the surface. People are going to go, Oh my God. And, and some of them are going to work and some of them aren't. In my opinion, this was one of those kind of out of the box ideas way over the top. You know, Dusty had a vision for it. And, uh, you know, I, I, I have a hard time saying it was a great success or even a moderate success, but it was definitely unique. You know, we're still talking about it all these years later. Absolutely. For your special discount today. So let's talk about Scott Hall sort of wrapping things up here. Um, I found in my notes that he wound up missing Starcade 91. He had to have some surgery done to remove some bone chips in his elbow. I believe when he finally does get to come back, he has a very brief, uh, feud, I guess you might call it with Dustin Rhodes. And he has a tremendous match with Bobby Eaton on TV and does some stuff with the dangerous Alliance, but then he winds up wrapping things up. In May of 92, I think his last televised match was, um, was like early May and fast forward just a few weeks and he's working for the WWF. So it looks like he came in on a one-year deal. Did you have any sort of conversation at all about Scott leaving at the time? None whatsoever. You know, that was uh, long before I got into any kind of a management position. As I said earlier, you know, we were friendly and we'd, you know, we'd occasionally hang out after a show or, or whatnot, but um, not to the extent we weren't friendly enough to have uh, a conversation about his leaving or joining WWE. We just weren't that close. Well, we know he's going to go on to become a big star 
for Vince McMahon under the Razor Ramon character. And we've briefly talked about this before uh, on one of our very early episodes when we talked about Scott Hall's debut uh, and just the early stages of the NWO. Briefly catch everybody up to speed here. You would have first had initial contact with them via who and approximately when in 1996. It, uh, it came through GDP, uh, is, you know, GDP had a relationship with Scott, uh, that, that I think went, went way back uh, to their days in Florida together and uh, mutual friendship with Dusty Rhodes and, you know, GDP and, and Scott were very well connected and it was GDP that came to me and said, Hey, Scott's wants to know if there's, you know, any interest you know, in, in him coming here. And, I, and because I was always, I was a huge fan of his in the AWA and certainly was aware of what he had done in WWF as the Razor Ramon character. And I I felt like he would complement our roster. So it, it was a very easy and pretty quick discussion and negotiation. I don't recall there being any substantive issues at all. It wasn't uh, one of those, you know, negotiations where, Scott was looking for a lot more money or, or, or any of that. It was quite seamless in terms of the negotiation. Um, I got the impression that Scott felt, no, this is just an impression. And part of this is looking back, right? It's, it's easy when I look back, you know, 20 some odd years ago to say, oh, this is the way I felt back then. But I, I, I tend not to do that because, you know, when you look back 20 years on a situation, your feelings subsequent to that situation, you know, sometimes evolve and change and and shade the way you actually do remember them. But I, I remember at the time, because I had heard about Scott's reputation. Scott, you know, came with a certain amount of baggage, and I was well aware of that, you know, when in 96 when he was coming in. And I talked to Scott about that briefly. You know, he had a reputation of being kind of a shit disturber backstage and being hard to manage backstage. And by 1996, believe it or not, um, we were feeling the 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 attitude and the the environment in you know backstage in WCW as well as in the front office of WCW, even though this was pre NWO. Um, was still pretty high. We were we we're making good progress. Things were moving in the right direction. There was a pretty good camaraderie, you know, in particularly compared to what I had seen in 92, 93, and early 94. So I wasn't real excited about bringing in, you know, someone that was going to be disruptive. And, and like I said, Scott and I did have a conversation about that. And, and during that conversation, I got the impression that Scott knew he he needed to change his um, approach to the industry. He, I think he realized that, you know, whatever went on in WWF was probably baggage that he couldn't afford to, you know, keep carrying around. And he had to kind of re, uh, reinvent himself to a degree professionally. Um, but he came in, he, Scott was easy to deal with. You know, he was just... He, it's all I really remember was the whole thing was very easy, although I was a little nervous about, you know, what would happen when he got into the locker room, but it, it never became an issue, at least not, not, not immediately. Anyway, just to clarify, you did all of your preliminary conversations and whatnot with Scott Hall first in advance of Kevin Nash, right? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I mean, and they came, you know, one right after another, but, uh, it wasn't until 
I think Scott was actually signed or damn close to it before we started having a conversation with Kevin. I asked because, well, I don't know, I'm probably going to get you fired up here. Uh, in February of 96, uh, McMahon is going to be in the observer complaining about contract tampering. And he's going to bring up diesel, the bushwhackers and, uh, Jean-Pierre Lafitte, uh, the, the guy we know as PCO now, supposedly Vince is claiming that diesel was offered a three-year deal. And, uh, diesel had been telling people that it was in the $750,000 range. Others would say it was four fifty. And this is February, so this is in advance of, of Razor coming over. But what stuck out about this report was, quote, the Bushwhackers were definitely offered $120,000 per year uh, a few months back. That's each. Uh, but although rarely used, they're still under contract to the WWF, which I don't believe WCW actually knew. When they went to McMahon to get out of their contract, he refused to let them out, citing he's in a wrestling war. Did you offer the Bushwhackers a gig? I did not. Now I'm I'm not going to say they weren't offered one. Keep in mind, you know, I, I didn't. You weren't signing. I didn't, Yeah. I wasn't signing people. I wasn't initiating conversations with talent. You know, by the time an acquisition got to me, generally it was through somebody else on our staff, whether it was Kevin Sullivan or Dusty or you know one of the boys or whomever. But officially, in terms of offering anybody a deal, that didn't come from me. Now, I'm not suggesting that someone else, whether it be Kevin Sullivan or Terry Taylor or Mike Graham or whomever, didn't have a conversation with the Bushwhackers and didn't suggest, hey, what if we could get you this amount of money? But in terms of an offer, a written offer, or even a conversation, because I've never had a conversation with the Bushwhackers. In fact, the first conversation I had with Luke was – about two years ago when I saw him, you know, at a wrestling event. Um, and he's now running a gym in Clearwater, Florida that my son works out at. And subsequently we've had a number of conversations, but back at this, at that period of time that you're discussing in 96, I hadn't up until that point, even spoken a word to, to either one of the bushwhackers. When you met him, did he walk over and lick your forehead? No, I was disappointed. I was ready for it. Yeah. Can you imagine trying to get away with that gimmick in 2019 where you have babyface wrestlers coming to the ring, licking children? Yeah, that wouldn't fly. <laughs> that... Tom, you know, and I'm, I'm not a big fan of, you know, the, the overly politically correct nature of, you know, our society in general, but it, you know, sports entertainment in particular, because look, this is a, 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 and in some cases it's, you know, fantastic athleticism and great storytelling. And, and sometimes it's just over the top kind of characters and parodies. And it, it, you know, it's a lot of things, but, um, the, the politically correct nature of our culture and our society has really kind of put a limit on a lot of the things you can do, you know, to entertain the audience, but I think in this case, as far as looking fans and shit like that, you know, it was probably a good thing that, that our, our culture has kind of evolved from that kind of, uh, entertainment. Yeah. Fair to say it's also in the same report that, uh, the interest in diesel supposedly from the WCW side quote from all sources, this has basically been confirmed that Hogan wants to bring him in as a heel and work a program with him. Do you remember having preliminary conversations with Hulk? I mean, cause that, I don't know, you know, you might go on a ramp here, but 
that does sort of line up with Hogan had made all of his money working with giants. So if you've got some big, nasty, mean giant dude, I mean, that sort of checks out. Wasn't no, it doesn't. No, it doesn't. I mean, I see how it could. I'm not, I'm not suggesting that the general formula that you've described for Hulk Hogan isn't or wasn't true at the time, because generally, yes, that was true. But the exact opposite is true in that I think Hulk, I don't want to speak for him, but I, I think his, what I remember was that he was very, very um, concerned about bringing Scott in and about bringing Kevin Nash in. Now, keep in mind, Hulk kept a lot closer ear to the ground on, you know, the backstage WWE drama. And, you know, he just had a lot more contacts. He had people calling and, you know, volunteering things and talking to him all the time, you know, because he, he was friendly with a lot of different people who were still in WWE. So Hulk had a different perspective and probably a clearer perspective, I might say on some of the the drama and the and the chemistry issues and the personality issues backstage than I did. And when I let, you know, when Hulk found out, I'm not sure if I told him or he just read about it or he heard about it, you know, through the normal channels. I don't, it wasn't a big deal. Uh, I didn't feel like I had to sit down and get permission or anything like that. But when he found out about it, he was less than enthusiastic. I'm not saying he tried to you know, bury him, him being Kevin Ash. I'm not suggesting, you know, he hulked through a fit or you know, he was angry, but he, he definitely expressed concern. And my impression at the time was that Hulk didn't think it was a great idea. He expressed concern because he had heard about the drama of the click and that Kevin may have been the de facto leader. I, you know, again, I would be, I'd be putting words or thoughts into Hulk's mind by suggesting that that was the case. I'm not exactly sure what his concerns were, but I'm guessing because he had a much clearer picture or at least had a, a more uh, a, a more continual or uh, continuous kind of conversation with people about things that were going on backstage at WWF at the time than I did, that that quite possibly could have been one of his concerns, but I'm, you know, we never, we never got into it in that much depth. I just, the reaction was, Oh man, really? You know, be careful with those guys, that type of thing, as opposed to, you know, drawing a line in the sand or pitching a fit. I, uh, I, I kind of wonder when you are signing big talent like this, cause you were involved in the Scott Hall piece because he was a bigger talent. What do you discuss as far as you know, expectations beyond, Hey, here's the number of dates and here's the amount of money. Is there a conversation about, we need you to look a certain way. Does that apply to men, women, uh, newcomers, vets, or did it, did it matter at all? I think it mattered in Scott's case because, you know, when Scott became available in at the point in time, when the negotiations had gotten to a point where in my mind, at least I would, even though the deal wasn't done, I was confident that it was going to be. That's when, you know, that kind of foggy idea of what became the NWO that I've been walking around with for about a year and a half or two years. That's when I went, Whoa, wait a minute. Scott's available by this point, you know, before Scott came in, I knew that I believed that we were going to get a deal done with Kevin now I'm thinking, okay, now there's a way to kind of create this. And at the time, I, I don't want to say I knew the idea. I, I had the idea in my head was just a uh, an etch-a-sketch outline of an idea. I didn't have a name for it. 
you know, when Scott came in, I didn't have this image in my head of, okay, we're going to call it the NWO and we're going to do these really, you know, out of the box types of promos. And we're going to do all this crazy, you know, backstage kind of stuff. I didn't have that in my head. The idea wasn't that fleshed out yet, but it was fleshed out enough that I knew with Scott coming in and Kevin coming in shortly thereafter, that it was important that Scott came in with that renegade type of, uh, character that didn't come in through the normal channels, meaning I didn't want him coming through the backstage area. I didn't want it to be announced that Scott Hall was now joining WCW and leaving WWE. And, you know, I didn't want all that online hoopla. You know what I mean? I wanted him to come in as a surprise. I wanted him to come in through the crowd. I wanted him to come in, not dressed like a wrestling character per se, but like a real person. And I knew that I wasn't going to come up with a gimmick name for him. So Scott and I did talk about a lot of those things. Well, I know we're sort of sidebarring here, but you know, we've, we've done a lot of shows with Bruce Pritchard and Jim Ross, and we've heard a lot about, um, weight management, you know, that they, they wanted Mark Henry to lose weight or they wanted big show to lose weight. They wanted Yoko or Vader to lose weight, or they wanted this guy to put on some more muscle or whatever. I don't know that you and I have ever discussed a conversation like that ever happening in WCW. Did those conversations happen? And if so, who would have been the person having that conversation with the talent? Uh, I mean, I never had a conversation with anyone like that. Uh, you know, besides telling Shivani to put down the donuts. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Other than that, but, uh, you know, n- no, I mean, when I, it, look, it, Scott Hall's case, there was clearly no need for sure. you know, that type of conversation or Kevin Nash's. And most of the people that I brought in from WWF, uh, whether it be Randy Savage or whomever, you know, they were all in pretty decent shape or their characters didn't require that they, you know, look shredded and, and that type of thing. So I, to answer the question very simply, no, I never really had those types of conversations with anybody um, that I can recall. Let's keep it moving here and, and let's talk about you know, Scott Hall coming in, uh, I guess you should know that we've done a whole episode, of this available now in the archives, all about the debut and the, the sort of formation of the NWO with Kevin Nash coming in. Let's, uh, sort of fast forward a little bit. I mean, the, the gist is on screen creatively things are at an all time high and because you're in this, you know, wrestling war head to head on Monday. Vince McMahon is firing off saying that, you know, we're going to sue you for pretending to be WWF performers. And then you guys set the wood on woods on fire in July when Hulk Hogan turns and becomes a bad guy for the very first time. And you're sort of off to the races. Um, when did you feel, was it that night in July where you felt like not just to return Hogan, but man, we've got the right guys in Scott Hall and Kevin Nash. <laughs> It was actually before that, truth be told, when we were at the Disney MGM tapings, I think in June, <clears throat> shortly after Scott and Kevin, you know, both revealed themselves. And it was, the, the, it, I just kind of, and again, I'm just, I'm, I'm measuring my words here and I'm hesitating because it's, it's just so easy to put oneself over when you're looking back at things and say, I knew this back when, and I knew I had this instinct and most of the time it's not true. Uh, but I did feel like with Scott and Kevin and with the potential of Hulk Hogan turning that the chemistry 
as odd as it was, because they didn't really, it, that wasn't a casting uh, when you're looking at three guys. You wouldn't, on paper, that wouldn't look like it would be as, as great as it was. But I kind of had the sense early on that things were going to work out. It, but it was a, it was a gut feeling. It wasn't anything tangible. It wasn't a conversation. It wasn't anything other than the instinct and just a feeling. We've talked a ton about the early stuff, including uh, fall brawl that we just recently did. Uh, Halloween Havoc is pretty notable because uh, Scott Hall wins his first tag title here in WCW with his uh, buddy Kevin Nash from the Harlem Heat. Great match, three and a quarter stars. At this point. Halloween Havoc 96, you've got uh, everybody with the gold, man. You've got Hulk Hogan with the world title, and now the outsiders are the tag champs. What's the, uh, what's the theory? What's the model to telling a story with the bad guys collecting all the belts like this? Well, I mean, if you go back and look at our programming during that period of time, we were clearly setting the, the tone for a, a, a kind of NWO insurrection within the WCW organization. And we're, I don't want to say we were trying to build two brands because that makes it sound like a lot more thought was given to that idea at this time. Now we, I gave that, I gave that idea a lot of thought subsequent to October of 96, when we started really building momentum in 97, it became apparent to me that, okay, the opportunity to have two separate brands under one roof is definitely here with the NWO. But in 96, you know, I wasn't thinking that big as far as splitting the two, you know, factions up, so to speak, or the two brands up. But I was thinking, and I think it's evidenced in the content that you can go back and watch on the WWE Network. And I encourage you to do it because it was a fascinating time in, in terms of professional wrestling or sports entertainment, whatever you choose to call it, because storytelling changed to your point. Um, here were, especially after, you know, the July, you know, bash at the beach pay-per-view and the Hulk Hogan turn as sex successful as that was. And born out of that were those very, uh, creative and new, uh, vignettes that we would do with the NWO. And I think that was one of the things that really got them over, but it, it got them over by making them cool. Those, those vignettes were so unique and, it, it, and nothing like that had ever been done before. And they were so well done that it, we started noticing that here's these heels. That was the original storyline is that these guys were all going to be heels and it was going to be the WCW baby faces against the NWO heels. But what happened uh, during that period of time is the fans started really embracing the NWO because they were so flipping cool and that changed storytelling. It changed a lot of things, not only in WCW, but I think in WWF at the time, all of a sudden that change in the traditional formula, the traditional psychology, what people would always do, you know, previous to this point for a baby face to get over, we threw that rule book out the window and we were writing a new one. And it 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 became a real challenge, and I think we may have touched on this before, because the babyface side of that equation at that time was having a real hard time making their shit work because the NWO was so over. And what was a, a really strange, and again, I, I encourage you to go back and, and watch some of this, whether it's Nitro or some of the pay-per-views on the WWE Network, 
um, you can see that in the in the audience's reactions to things. You weren't getting that traditional Pavlovian kind of babyface response and heel response. It was beginning to get m- more. It was mixed. And you'd have people, you know, if, if in the right situation, whether it was Kevin Nash or Scott Hall or Hulk Hogan, you know, getting his heat on a WCW babyface, you know, you'd get some of that heel reaction uh, or the babyfaces would be reacting to it the way you would expect they would. But you'd also have half of the arena, you know, in their NWO shirts going, fuck, yeah, let's do this. And that really, really uh, it fundamentally changed, I think, storytelling in professional wrestling in a very substantial way. Do you think it's for the better? Um, look, yes, because I, I do believe, um, all things have to change. They have to evolve with the culture. You know, if you go back and you look at the movie industry, you know, anti-heroes were becoming a really big thing during this period of time. The audience was, the movie going audience, the television audience in general was kind of tired of the, you know, $6 million man baby face character on television or, you know, the traditional, you know, hero in a feature film and, and, the, and the, the journey that a, a hero would generally face in a movie. And they were embracing antiheroes, uh, flawed antiheroes, but antiheroes nonetheless. And we happen to, and I, again, I don't want to make myself sound smarter than I am about things. It's certainly back in 96 because I was learning on the job, as I said, said before, but it, it was coincidental that while the audience's taste and expectations in terms of characters and entertainment was evolving into more of an anti-hero kind of a journey, uh, we just happened to be creating an anti-hero cast of characters that really, really clicked. And again, I'd like to, to, you know, try to convince everybody that that was my plan all along and I was that smart or had that much vision. It it wasn't that. It was, and I've said this before, it was, you know, it was a perfect storm. It was sometimes the best ideas in the world are the victim of bad timing. And sometimes some of the worst ideas in the world get the benefit from good timing. And this was a case where we had a great idea at the right time. The audience was looking for it, and we just happened to be able to give it to them. And I do think it was for the better. To answer your question, yes, because if we had stuck, just imagine this for a moment. If we had, if for whatever reason, if somebody would have come to me and said, "Eric, this is a bad idea," you're, and believe me, they did to varying degrees. People did have this conversation with me after the Hulk Hogan turn. This is a bad idea. You know, the baby faces are going to have a hard time getting over. We're not. There's no psychology. This is you know completely upending the way we do business. Uh, was the general theme of the day. You know, shortly after Hogan turned heel, had I. And I said, yeah, God, you're right. Let's not do this anymore and shut down the NWO and gone back to the hero babyface formula from the 70s and the 80s and the early 90s or mid 90s at this point. I'm, I'm not sure that the business would be where it is today. There would not have been. And, I, and again, I'm not patting myself on the back. Just facts are fucking facts. You know, like I say, no brag, just fact, buy the T-shirt. You know, had we not done what we did with the NWL, had we not changed the way we told stories and had we not fulfilled an evolving audience expectation for a different type of character uh, and provide that to them in the form of the NWL, there would not have been 
an attitude era. There would not have been a DX. You probably wouldn't have seen Mike Tyson and Steve Austin in a storyline with, with, you know, Mr. McMahon. So many things that we did in 96 um, changed the way storytelling was going to be executed for the next 20 years. And some may say, oh, you know, if you talk to a, a traditionalist, you know, some old timer, you know, and I guess chronologically, I'd probably fall into that category. But from a producer's point of view and a storyteller's point of view, I'm I'm exactly the opposite of that. I, I, I truly recognize how much audience taste evolves, whether it's in professional wrestling, whether it's in television, whether it's in movies, whether it's in music. You know, the audience's tastes and expectations constantly evolve. And if you don't evolve with it, you become a victim of it. I firmly believe that. So while some people may go, oh, yeah, the NWO ruined the business forever. Well, I don't think so. I don't think the WWE would be a public company today had it not been for the boom period that was created as a result of Scott Hall and Kevin Nash coming over to, to WWE and the Hulk Hogan turn and the subsequent NWO and the influence. I know this show is about Scott. It's not about just the NWO. But I, I think without the influence and the impetus that Scott Hall primarily, you know, originally he was he, he was yeah. the cat that yeah. launched it. You know what I mean? Yeah. Uh, and the rest of it was just great casting. But had it not been for all of that, in, in the way storytelling evolved during that period of time, I don't think you'd be looking at the wrestling landscape today the same way. You talked a little bit about the anti-hero thing and you're doing this in advance of stone cold, Steve Austin becoming a thing and, and his meteoric rise as the anti-hero. But you said, you know, that that was what was taking place in pop culture. Uh, we didn't talk about this ahead of time. I'm sort of pushing you out on a limb here. Did you intentionally look to other aspects of entertainment and say, Hey, I need an anti-hero and Scott Hall is the guy, or did the creative just sort of make him the anti-hero? And then you realized what you had once you were going. It was the latter. It was the latter. You know, I knew, look, like I said earlier, I knew that this invasion storyline that I had in mind, it was perfect for Scott Hall and perfect for Kevin Nash because the premise of that storyline, once again, was very simple. These were two guys who had previously been in WCW who didn't feel like they were treated fairly. And now I'm talking about storyline-wise and character-wise. And, and there was some truth to it too, which was one of the reasons why it became so crystal clear as an opportunity in my head. I know it was true. Um, but two guys who felt like WCW didn't treat them the way they should have been treated, didn't give them what they deserved when they were there. They went to WWF, became big stars, and they were now they were coming back to take revenge. That was the most simplistic explanation, if you will, of the idea that I had in my head. Now, it evolved into something much bigger than that as time went on. But that was the idea. And I didn't, you know, I, I wanted Scott. I, oh, here's what I knew I wanted. I knew I wanted reality. Right. I knew and I, I don't think I gave much consider. I didn't look at another character in the movie industry, for example, or another television star and go, oh, Scott Hall could be that guy. Right. But I knew in general, I wanted that type of anarchy in the company. I wanted to create that buzz and that controversy. I wanted to create 
the perception that there was a war going on within my own company. And I wanted that perception to manifest it in a storyline that I hoped, you know, would last a couple months. Clearly it lasted a couple of years, several years, um, probably a year or two too long in many people's estimations, including my own, by the way. But nonetheless, um, that, to answer your question, I didn't base Scott Hall's character on somebody else's. I just knew that, you know, if you looked at a lot of the, you know, the feature films, and I can't remember them all off the top of my head, but, you know, even the Terminator movies, you know, with Schwarzenegger, that was kind of an anti-hero. And we've subsequently, we've seen a lot more of that. But I think if there was anything that I was influenced by, as odd as this is going to sound, it, it was probably music um, and just the general feeling that there was that anti-hero. I don't want to say anti-hero would be wrong, wrong way to say it in music, but the, you know, hip hop was really becoming popular at that time. I mean, it had been popular, but it was really beco- becoming more and more popular. And the the traditional bubblegum kind of way of packaging music was no longer resonating, and, and the music business was dying because of it. So I, I don't want to say I looked to the hip hop industry or the music industry for inspiration, but I was very well aware of it. And now having a guy like Scott Hall coming in to help create this insurrection within my own company, it all made sense to me intuitively, if that makes sense. Let's talk about Scott, you know, as we, but we get through Halloween havoc, he's the tag champ now with, with Kevin Nash. And as we head towards Starcade, he starts to have a little bit of an on-screen interaction with two of his old pals. One with Diamond Dallas Page, and we know that the big stunner is coming in January in New Orleans, but it looks like we're headed for it in November. Um, Kevin Nash and Scott Hall are trying to get Diamond Dallas Page to have a conversation about joining the NWO, and DDP is, is upset because he's like the eighth guy that's asked, and they explain on TV, well, the reason we didn't ask you sooner is because you live two houses down from Eric Bischoff. <laughs> And they do some inside stuff here where Paige says a, a bit of a rant about how that's what all the boys say behind his back and that he's getting his push because of Bischoff, but they don't know about the hours I've put in at the power plant. This feels sort of out of left field. Are you and, and Scott trying to do your buddy a solid or what's the rationale with sort of giving everybody a peek behind the curtain like this? Well, it was the nature of the way we're, we just talked about how stories were evolving and we wanted reality and we wanted to blur those lines between, you know, comic book type of storytelling, which had been the norm throughout the eighties and in early nineties and tell stories that I don't want to say confuse the audience, confuse them in the right way. Meaning, my goal was always to achieve what I firmly believed was the sweet spot in professional wrestling before I even got into it, before I got into the business. As a fan watching it, even into my mid and late 20s, I would watch it. My wife would look at me and go, what in the fuck are you still watching professional wrestling for? And, and I would tell her that, you know, in my opinion, when it's done right, meaning when the stories are presented the right way, it's the purest form of marketing that there is. And when I say when it's done right, my opinion then, and now 
we're talking about you know early 80s mid 80s when my wife would look at me and shake my head and ask me why I was watching wrestling um even back then I would see those moments when I was watching a match and there would be moments when it was so good and I'll I'll go back again to Nick Bockwinkle and Kurt Hennig or I'll go to Nick Bockwinkle and almost anybody really there were times when whether it was Nick's interviews his promos if you will or whether it was the psychology and just the flawless execution of Nick's storytelling whomever he was working with in the ring there was the moment there was those moments and i would say Larry the Axe Hennig also fell into that category for me um there were moments when i would consciously say to myself okay i know Everything else is designed to entertain me. And again, keep in mind, this is before we broke into the business. I know all these other things are what they are, but these two guys, they really hate each other. These two guys really have an issue. Now, obviously that wasn't the case. And I was reacting as a fan in my twenties and thirties and trying to figure out how this thing called professional wrestling worked and why it was so successful. But I isolated those moments and, and was able to see the difference between you know, silly Mad Dog Vashon, you know, character kind of gimmicks or the Crusher or uh, Ivan Putsky, you know, the Polish bear or whatever the fuck he was. There was those kind of over-the-top character performances. And then there was those performances that were designed to believe, to, to be so real and believable. And they, the fact that they weren't over-the-top, like the rest of the stories that may have been playing out on a given show were, it made me realize, ah, that's how you keep this audience. Entertain them with the gaga, make them laugh, do some crazy over-the-top shit, but give them something that feels so real, it convinces the audience at home to go, hmm. That might, they actually hit each other a little harder than I think they're supposed to. They, they, that interview's kind of, yeah, it's getting a little bit personal. I'm starting to believe this one. And for me, it was always Nick Bockwinkle that was able to, to deliver those kind of promos. And in, in my mind, I think that's when I started to realize that, you know, coming up with those bits of reality and, and peeling back the curtain, as you suggested, or peeling another layer of the onion, letting the audience in, in a way that didn't overexpose the business, but it made the narrative more believable. It, it when you start saying things that you typically wouldn't hear, uh, in a, in a traditional wrestling formula, and it didn't always have to be big things, but when you started hearing a narrative that was like, well, wait a minute, that's there's some truth to that. And the, uh, GDP does live down the street from Eric, and there were a lot of you know a lot of the boys were hard on Page. He was taking a lot of heat because he was getting a push, and he was my friend. And in typical locker room kind of you know a jail food mentality, you know, psychology, you know, well, the only reason Paige is getting that push is because he's hanging out with Eric Bischoff. And I understand why that, that perception existed. It wasn't true. He was getting the push because he deserved it. And he was working his guts out. And as we found out later on, he deserved that push. But nonetheless, during this period of time, that little bit of reality in that promo or that narrative that you just described between Scott and, and Paige and, and Paige's response about, fuck you, you know, that's what all the boys are saying. And I'm working my ass off. I'm, you know, hey, Bishop, maybe my friend, but that's not why I'm getting the push. That was all kind of 
narrative and commentary that was existing in the periphery of, of, of television. So it was just an easy way to take a little bit of truth, weave it into this fictional story that we were telling, and do it in a way that made the audience believe, shit, this NWO thing is real. At least, even if, look, I'm not naive enough, and I certainly wasn't in 96 naive enough to think that I'm going to convince the audience that everything I do is real. That wasn't my goal. My goal was to make it real enough that the audience would look at it and go, wow, this is really interesting. Much like I did when I was a fan growing up in Minnesota watching a Nick Bakwinkel promo. Nick's promos were real enough. I wasn't naive enough. I wasn't enough of a mark to think that, you know, whatever his issues were with, for example, young Kurt Hennig in AWA. I was a, you know, that's the storyline and angle that I've talked about a lot. Yeah, I wasn't naive enough at that time, even though I wasn't in the business to think these guys really hated each other's guts, but it was real enough to allow me to drop my guard as a viewer and lean into the story and the character and allow myself to buy into it. And that's what I was trying to do at that time. And that's why you would hear a lot of that behind the curtain kind of commentary in our stories is because I was trying to make it real enough that the audience would go, okay, I'm going to buy into this. And they would allow themselves to believe it. I didn't have to convince them. I just had to give them a reason to, I had to give them a reason to allow themselves to buy into the story. One of the other things that Hall's going to be doing on TV is start a little bit of a beef with Larry Zabisco and Zabisco was somebody that Scott's always had a soft spot for Zabisco took care, took care of him in the uh, AWA back in the day when Scott was first breaking in and he was always forever grateful and he gave him a lot of good advice. Like I think Scott Hall has said that it may have been Zabisco's idea to have Scott come through the crowd when he made his debut in the NWO. So maybe it makes sense if you understand the relationship, but it is a little odd if you don't, that all of a sudden Scott Hall is sort of jaw jacking with one of the announcers. Is this something Scott brings to you and says, Hey, I'd like to help get this guy over and repay the favor. Or how does that interaction exist on TV? It certainly didn't happen that way. I mean, Scott didn't, especially you got to keep in mind when I pick Scott up, we're going to back up just a little bit, you know, to Scott's, um, first appearance and going back to one of the things we were talking about a little while ago, you know, I was a little, not a little, I was very aware of Scott's reputation. I was very concerned that for the first time since I had been in WCW, the, the backstage environment was look, it's not like it was Disney and everybody was high-fiving each other as they walked past each other. There were still, you know, issues and some guys didn't like other guys. And there was, you know, there's always that. You know, as there is, you know, probably in UPS or, you know, the the federal government or you know any major retailer. Whenever you have a large group of people working together, you're always going to have some kind of you know chemistry issues. But overall, the the general feeling backstage was very positive, and I was because I was concerned about the disruption to that and the risk that I was taking by bringing Scott in. Um, I told Scott. You know, when he flew into Atlanta, because Scott's first appearance was in Macon, Georgia. And this one I do remember so vividly because it happened to be my birthday. And I picked Scott up at uh, at his hotel. I think he was staying at the Radisson or the Marriott or somewhere in, in Atlanta, So I, in south, south side of Atlanta. So I picked him up on my way to 
Macon simply because I wanted to have a conversation with him face-to-face about my concerns, not in front of a bunch of other people and not with his agent or attorney or anything like that. I just wanted him and I to be able to have a conversation for an hour and a half or two hours while we were driving to Macon. And we had that conversation. And when Scott came in, as I said earlier in this show, Scott was very well aware of the baggage he was bringing to the table. And Scott was on his absolute best behavior as a professional. He, he was anxious to do whatever was asked of him. He didn't challenge question. He didn't come over the top with ways of making anything better. At least not at this point, he was just there to do what was asked of him. So to be really specific about your question, no, he did not. And it it just wouldn't have been the right time for him to, to suggest something like that because of the nature of the timing and everything else that was going on with him coming in. He was simply, you know, what do you want me to do, boss? You know, what do you got in mind? How, how can I make this work? That was his prevailing, his overall attitude. He didn't come in and say, hey, we're going to do this. I want to get Larry Zabisco over because he's my bud. I mean, that would have been really over the top for him to do that at that point. And that just wasn't where his head was at. So how that idea evolved, it was a natural one. Scott and, and Zabisco had not only were, were friends, they were, uh, but they were friends because they had a lot of history together and, and going back to the AWA. So it was a natural um, thing to do. I can't tell you whose idea it was. It was probably Scott and I talking together, you know, before the show and, and you know, talking about, yes, you know, because Larry was an announcer and we had to, you know, make sure that the reactions were right, that type of thing. So who knows how the the idea came up, but it was a natural one to me because of the previous history. Well, it is uh, interesting at the time because I didn't know the backstory. So I thought it was a little, I don't know, different. But it becomes very apparent just one month after the outsiders win the tag titles that there's not really a lot for them to do. They had a really great match at Halloween havoc with Harlem heat, but one month later we're at world war three and we've decided to make it a three way with Ming and barbarian in one corner, the nasty boys in the other. I got to tell you as a fan, I did not think that either one of these teams were even a remote threat to. Kevin Nash and Scott Hall, who at this point had been positioned as tippy top guys. Did you think it in this era? Uh, Hey man, our tag division is kind of thin. It was kind of thin. And there was a lot of discussion during this period of time about tag team titles and the tag team division in general. And I'm going to, I'm going to say this and probably as many people are going to disagree with me today as they did back in 96, but from a business perspective, Purely a business perspective, not a creative one, just dollars and cents. A tag team division is very, very inefficient from a cash flow perspective. And if you think about it from a producer's point of view, not from a fan's point of view, but if you if you're responsible for the bottom line, if you have a talent budget um, and you have to live within it. And despite what people may want to think or have been conditioned to think, that was indeed the case in 96. I had a very specific talent budget, and I had to come in or underneath it at the end of every year. When you look at a tag team match, you got four guys in the ring having a match for anywhere from, I don't know, probably eight minutes, sometimes 20, 
25 on television on rare occasions. It's a segment, or in some cases, maybe two segments. But you've got four guys in the ring to deliver that. Let's call it one segment, because most of the time we're doing one segments, generally speaking, at the time. you got four guys in a ring producing a segment instead of two guys. So you've got double your talent costs. You've got double your transportation costs. It becomes very expensive to have a meaningful tag team division. Because if you're going to build a tag team division and really make it meaningful, you're going to need six or eight teams, four to six at a bare minimum, so that you can tell stories and build to a climactic finish in a pay-per-view or a climactic end to a you know a, a two- or three-month arc or whatever it is you're trying to do. If you're trying to build a team, they have to overcome challenges, not just you know, one tag team, uh, maybe if you're building your babyface tag team to become, you know, huge baby faces, they're going to, you have to feed them heel tag teams over the course of three or four months. So if you just look at it from a dollars and cents point of view, a tag team division isn't a very, very expensive commodity. So I, I wasn't a fan of tag team wrestling, not because I didn't like watching it, but because I didn't like paying for it. And I still believe that's true to this day. You know, it's really hard if if you look around the, the wrestling landscape, you know, tag team divisions are c- tough and expensive to keep populated w- with great talent because of the financial pressure that comes along with it. It's too easy to start, oh, okay, we got this great tag team, but tonight he's going to wrestle in a singles match or tonight she's going to wrestle in a singles match because, God, we need that segment. And the minute you start breaking those tag teams up and doing one-off you know, singles matches and things like that, all of a sudden you're kind of diluting the whole idea be- behind that tag team. And I, you know, that was one of the reasons why we didn't have a great tag team division in 96 because I wasn't putting an emphasis on it. Because economically, it was just not an efficient way to manage a talent budget. Let's talk about something else that's going to be discussed in the budget. This lawsuit from the WWF when they're saying, oh, you're using our characters. And, you know, we created the Razor Ramon character and he still looks like Razor Ramon. And you guys would argue, well, no, he actually looked like Diamond Stud when he was Razor Ramon. Were there certain elements that you consciously stayed away from? I mean, we know we've got the slick back hair and. We got the little curl in the front and we got the toothpick, but did you think, Hey, if we go so far as to give him the old Mr. T starter set with all the jewelry, maybe that's taking it too far. No. And in retrospect, I don't want to say it was a mistake because if you go back and look at the diamond stud character before Scott Hall went to the WWF from the toothpick to the curl to the Puerto Rican influence, it was all there. Now, I'm not going to suggest that there wasn't some similarities between Scott Hall's appearance when he showed up in WCW and his former character in WWF, Razor Ramon. And I think probably the slick back hair, exactly the way it looked with a curl that looked exactly the way it looked was probably the thing that got WD, and I don't know, you know, we've never really had that discussion, but it was probably one of the things that really got their attention. They hang their, they hung their hat on, but well, I'll tell you what, and even after all these years, one of the things that, you know, pisses, when I say it pisses me off, it's just like, God damn it. We could, we could have won that. 
As you go back and you look at the, you know, that Diamond Stud character, that was an issue that no, no one on the legal side of Turner Broadcasting raised. They just didn't do a good job fighting Jerry McDivitt. They couldn't. They just weren't equipped. And when Jerry camped out on that similarity between the um, the, the WWF Razor Ramon character and the similar look of Scott Hall and WCW, one of the first things that a, a decent attorney should have done is go, no, motherfucker. Look back to 1991 or 1992, whenever it was, when the Diamond Stud was flicking toothp- toothpicks at the crowd. But that was the one thing that Jerry McDivitt, probably the largest thing, not the one thing. There were other things, but it was probably one of the more significant uh, issues that they raised in that lawsuit is the similarity between Razor Ramon and Scott Hall when he showed up in WCW. And I, I submit that he didn't show up looking like Razor Ramon necessarily. He showed up looking like Diamond Stud wearing a jean jacket or vest. The only thing he was missing is the jewelry and. That makes me think about our friend, Steven Singer. And I'll tell you the competition must really hate this guy. He makes the experience of buying a diamond better and better, and he makes it fun. Steven is the very first to offer each and every customer the perfect price. That's right. Have you ever wondered if you're actually getting the best price? Are you uncomfortable negotiating? Head to Steven Singer jewelers and you're guaranteed to get the perfect price. You'll never pay more than the guy sitting next to you. And here's a little insider tip. Most jewelers mark their merchandise way up just to mark it down to make you feel like you're getting a deal. The guy next to you may be paying less. Do you want the most important purchase of your life to be based on your negotiating skills? It's never the case at Steven Singer because at Steven Singer Jewelers, you're guaranteed the perfect price all day, every day, 365 days a year. And that's why we trust Steven Singer. He makes the experience of buying a diamond so easy. So check out Steven Singer Jewelers at the other corner of 8th and Walnut in Philly or online at IHateStevenSinger.com. Steven Singer Jewelers, one place, one price. They've been with us for a while now, and uh, you're a big believer in Steven Singer, aren't you? I am so over because of Steven Singer, not only with my bride, Mrs. B, but with my daughter, my daughter-in-law. You want to send... A loved one, something that's really unique that they're going to remember for a long time, and it'll probably end up on a mantle or in a dresser of your room or something like that. Go to stevensinger.com. They have so many great gifts and so many unique great gifts that are amazingly affordable. I hate stevensinger.com. Check it out right now. Uh, something else I hated was when you guys started to let any old Tom, Dick, and Harry into the NWO. It happens towards the end of the year. We would see, um, the report. They're going to add a lot of guys to the NWO. So they have enough wrestlers to fill a one hour show without putting Hall and Nash in the ring for 20 minutes every week. The downside is that it makes the NWO less exclusive as the cool organization. When they start letting guys like wall street in, um, in hindsight, wish you had that one back. Sure do. You know, I'm not going to disagree with that. Um, whoever wrote it, I'm assuming it was Meltzer or, or yeah. Wade Keller, probably. I'm not going to dis- disagree with that. You know, it's it. it yeah, I'd love to have that one back. You know, I can I can justify it or or attempt to or explain. Not even justify it. I can explain it, which I've done on the show. So I'm not going to waste your time doing it again. People can find it in the archives, but nonetheless, 
regardless of what the intentions were or the rationale was at the time, it was clearly a bad choice. Two other bad choices are suggested here in the newsletter. Expect Tataka to join the NWO under another name, and Bam Bam Bigelow's name has been brought up as well, although there are reservations there since Bigelow left the WWF primarily because he couldn't get along with Hall and Nash, among others. Of course, we know eventually Bigelow does come in. Tataka never does. Uh, Is this all rumor and innuendo, or did you ever have conversations that you know of with these guys? You you call it rumor and innuendo. I just call it bullshit. I mean, kind of call it as I see it. That is more fiction, you know, from Mr. Meltzer. So much of what he writes is fiction. Um, I, I don't even I don't even think most of it qualifies as rumor and innuendo. I just think he makes shit up. Um, never ever had one syllable, not a consonant, not a vowel, not a hand gesture <laughs> with Tatanka about coming into WCW, period, more or less into the NWO. So I, you know, I don't know if that's, I don't know where it came from, if Meltzer just made it up, if, you know, somebody fed it to him just because they'd know he'd be goofy enough to write it um, without backing it up, but no, it, it never happened. And it, you know, Bam Bam did come in, but he was never discussed as being part of the NWO. Something uh, that was discussed a lot in the newsletter that I believe is accurate because it's been discussed a lot by the two involved. There's a bit of a dust up, a disagreement with Jerry Sags and Scott Hall. And it would first start with the November 18th Nitro. Scott Hall swings a chair at Jerry Sags and Sags suffers a mild concussion. And apparently it was talked about beforehand where Scott Hall had the attitude of when I swing a chair, I swing to me. It's don't ask me to hit you with something because I'm going to hit you. I'd rather not do it, but if I'm going to do it, I'm going to do it and I'll take it the same way. So. They have another situation that's in November, but they have another situation that really gets out of control in January. They have a show in little rock on January 3rd, and then another show on the fourth in Shreveport. And in here we've got, uh, in Shreveport, a triangle match with Megan, the barbarian, the nasty boys and the outsiders, much like we've talked about on the pay-per-view, but Jerry Sags, uh, throws furniture into the ring. It's a plastic chair, supposedly. And Scott Hall throws it back and, um, Sags does not see it coming and he gets hit in the back of the head. And supposedly they had a discussion before the match. Hey, just don't do anything to the back of my head because he had some sort of nagging injury. Well, immediately Sags is seeing stars. And when he turns around, he sees it's Scott Hall and he goes and really starts laying some punches in knocks a tooth out, loosens two others, gives him a black eye and Scott's mouth is immediately swelling. When they get to the back, Kevin Nash looks at him like, what the fuck? And goes and grabs a sting bat, swings it over the head of the nasty boys and hits a locker or something in the locker room and says, you guys want to see who's got stroke around here. Motherfuckers. That's allegedly the story. And 
obviously sags has to be thinking oh shit i'm gonna lose my job because he is a these guys have eric's ear uh right or wrong this has been discussed a lot what do you remember about hearing this and uh what can you tell us about this dust up well you know i I can't confirm or deny any of the conversations between the parties because i wasn't in the room when it happened or at the arena when it happened i heard about it subsequently probably the next day um I think if if Jerry was concerned about his job, he should have been more concerned about it from the perspective of did he take it too far and did he do something inappropriate as a result of something that happened in the ring, not whether or not these guys had stroke with me. That wouldn't have played. You know, if you want to if you want to kind of throw yourself into a what if scenario you know, the Nasty Boys probably felt like they had a fair amount of stroke as well because of their relationship with Hulk Hogan. Right. So I don't, th- I don't think who has the most stroke was the prevailing issue at the time. I, I think there were two guys that were really fucking hot. Add Kevin Nash to the equation. Now you got three, um, two, you know, three guys. Well, now five that are all pretty familiar with each other, meaning the Nasty Boys and Scott and Kevin, um, or four, I should say. Um, so I could see how that whole thing escalated. And I certainly, you know, as I said, I heard about it the next day. It was an issue because there was, you know, physical injuries to, to Scott Hall that resulted from it. It wasn't incidental damage. It was intentional damage. And that kind of escalates it. You know, it's obviously it's one thing if somebody gets hurt in a match and it wasn't intentional versus, okay, motherfucker, you hit me in the back of the head with a chair and I ask you not to, now I'm going to knock your teeth out. That takes it to a whole different level of concern. And we look, we addressed it. It was a he said, he said, she said type of a situation because we weren't there. I could see in my mind how it happened because by this time, you're talking about January now of 97, the, the, you know, good corporate citizen Scott Hall had kind of evolved back into a degree back to some of the issues that he had in WWF when he came over. Once he got familiar, once he felt like he was comfortable in the situation at WCW, certainly once Scott came in, once the NWO angle happened, once they had a certain amount of stroke just because of who they were and where they were, you know, in the hierarchy at that time, um, the Scott Hall with the baggage that that Scott Hall started showing up much more frequently. So when I heard about the incident, you know, I was disappointed to hear about it, you know, because you know, I, I like the nasty boys still do Jerry Sags. I have a ton of respect for but Jerry Sags is also not the kind of guy you want to fuck with in or out of the ring. He wouldn't take any shit. He'd forgive you if you hit him with something stiff, because for God's sake, both him and Brian Knobs made a career you know, out of that. And they understand it when it's incidental or when you're just trying to lay things in. So it looks great. But I think either, either one of them, if they feel like you're trying to take advantage of them or you're disrespecting or you just don't give a shit that changes the dynamic of their reactions. It's certainly Jerry Sags. Um, so I understood how it happened. Um, we talked it through, tried to weigh all the options again, you know, who who was who was more guilty kind of in a court of law at least in the court of law that existed in my office uh kind of hard to pin it on any one person so you know we dealt with it the best way we could scott hall is on record as saying that you called his room that night and said something like i heard what happened oh my god he's fired and scott Scott would say i've known sax 20 years he's got kids 
And I said, I don't want to work with him anymore, but don't fire him. And I think what ended up happening was Sags ended up sitting at home for a long time and he got paid. I've seen him since then. And it was just something that happened. You know, I didn't intend for it to happen to him, but he intended to hurt me, which was wrong. The way I look at it is if you have a problem with me, you should have fought me in the locker room. Don't hit me with live rounds in the ring. When I'm giving you my body, I'm bleeding in my face out there and he's hitting me with everything he has. One thing I'm proud of though, is he gave me everything that he's got but he couldn't knock me out. So the, you, you disagree. This phone call of I'm firing, I'm firing him never happened. No, it's a, it's a weird deal because I think you guys actually let sags out of his contract in the early part of 97. So not too terribly long after this, what was the, I mean, is this the end for Jerry sags and WCW either way? I'm not sure I understand your question. Well, I mean, he wasn't necessarily fired for this, but I mean, he's not long for this world after the incident was that he asked for his release based on other business stuff. Was did he have some nagging injuries Did you guys give him a payout Did he sit at home and collect a check? Oh God. I, I don't know. You know, uh, I, I really don't, I don't have the records. I certainly don't recall it at the time. Uh, I'm not sure if he requested his release or if we just kind of phased him out because we were having, you know, the challenges, as I said, with the tag team division. And here's another thing, as much as I appreciated the Nasty Boys, and again, the Nasty Boys, just for, I don't know that we've ever talked about this on, on any of our podcasts, but the the very first relationships that I ever had outside of the business of the wrestling business with talent was, was with um, uh, Sags and Knobs. When they were in AWA, the very first time, you know, like a week or so after I, I had been in the AWA, and I'm not sure how what what the reasoning was or how they invited me, whatever, but they invited me over to the old Calhoun Beach Club over by Lake Calhoun in Minneapolis where Vern used to tape his show. And we sit down and had beer. This is the first time I'd ever met the guys and just got along great. And we had been friends ever since that time. So my relationship with the nasty boys goes way back to probably early or mid 19 or 1987. But even with that and with the relationship that they had with new Japan, because keep in mind, they were working a lot in new Japan as well. Masa Saito loved the nasty boys. He loved booking them over there because as a tag team, they, they're number one, they were a name. And number two, they could go over to Japan and have the kind of super stiff matches that the Japanese audiences were digging at that, that time and New Japan was offering. So, you know, they had the ability to kind of go back and forth to Japan and keep themselves busy if they weren't busy with me. That was probably the case more than it being, okay, guys, we're done with you. We've used you up. There's no more creative for you or as a residual, you know, hangover effect from, you know, the incident with Scott, you know, a couple months previous more, I'm, I'm guessing, you know, I'd have to talk to Jerry and Brian about it. Maybe they re remember it more clearly or differently, probably differently than clearly. <laughs> but, um, my guess is it was kind of like, okay, we're running out of rope here, tag team storyline wise. If you can go back to Japan and work a couple months in Japan or whatever, doors open, you can come back. My guess is it was probably more of that, but I could be wrong. Let's talk about Starcade. You know, this is, uh, from a fan perspective, your big event, you've talked about how, you know, in your mind, it started to become Halloween havoc. Starcade 96, clearly a big show. Nashville, Tennessee, December 29th, just a few days after Christmas. Uh, of course, on top, you've got Hollywood Hogan and Rowdy Roddy Piper who came back in October. 
The underneath is loaded as well. Jushin Liger and Rey Mysterio. Come on. Ultimo Dragon and Dean Malenko. Eddie Guerrero and DDP. Lex Luger and the Giant. Jarrett and Benoit. Medusa and Akira Hokuto. But then the outsiders and the faces of fear. (laughs) You know, you've got two big stars, arguably, you know, your second and third biggest stars or third and fourth, if you're counting Piper on the show and they're not here and we know stings in the rafters. So that makes sense. But I mean, a match with faces of fear, that's really just sort of a throwaway match to have a match. Is it not? Yeah, it was no, no, no question about that. And here's, you know, the idea that you put all of your top talent on all of your pay-per-views, which means you were putting all of your top talent and all of your main stories on television in order to put all of your main talent on all of your pay-per-views, you know, every single month completely flies in the face of trying to create opportunities for other people. And I'm not going to suggest to you that I was giving faces of fear, you know, a huge opportunity, but I will submit that one of my biggest concerns and and it proved to be true, uh, was overexposing talent. And that was probably more the reason than anything else to try to have all, especially when you look at our roster to have all of the top talent in in all of the main stories and all of your big pay-per-views or even all of your pay-per-views would require all of that talent to be on TV each and every week. And I didn't want to do that. I'm not suggesting that I, that I was effective at trying to ration out, you know, our top talent, clearly (laughs) putting the faces of fear in a position they were in, as you just described, was not a great idea, but it was the rationale behind it at least. Uh, we should talk about the uh, moment in January that sort of made DDP. He, he circles back to this as being really the start of his best year in wrestling at this point, he's going to go on to have a tremendous feud of the year with Randy Macho Man Savage, but here in January, they're in new Orleans, they're at the dome and it finally happens. Scott Hall and Kevin Nash come out, offer him an NWO shirt. He puts it on. And then as uh, Kevin Nash is sort of celebrating with the crowd or showing off, and he has his back turned. Scott Hall catches a diamond cutter. And when Nash sees what's going on, he charges him. DDP ducks out of the way, runs out through the stands, celebrates with the fans. Huge pop. And this sort of makes DDP. And allegedly, this had been planned to happen a few weeks in a row, and it kept getting bumped. And I think it was Scott Hall who's on record as saying, when you and he were talking about this, like, Hey, I thought we were going to do that with Dallas. Maybe you were a little dismissive. Like, "Ah, I don't know with the idea being you didn't want to show favoritism because you were already hearing a lot of shit about DDP this or DDP that because he did lift two doors down for me. And supposedly Scott Hall changed the way you thought about that a little bit. Like, I don't want to work for a guy who it's a, it's a bad thing. If you're his friend or something to that effect. Do you remember the conversation and this big moment finally happening for Dallas? Clearly, I don't remember the conversation word for word, but I will tell you that the way you just relayed that story to me, I would say is probably 80% true. You know, again, who knows what the exact words were, but I, I do recall that 
there had been talk about this angle. And it was Scott Hall's idea, by the way. It wasn't DDP's idea. It was Scott Hall's idea. And Scott came to me with it. And I was concerned that, oh, here we go. I mean, and it wasn't concerned for me. I didn't really give a shit what people thought of me at the time because by that time in 96, 97, uh, believe me, I'd already been blistered (laughs) enough in the media uh, so I wasn't too concerned about what people thought of me or my decisions, um, and at least not enough to make me decide not to do something I wanted to do or vice versa. But I was concerned for Paige. He was, as, as his friend and as the guy that he had to manage him, his talent, it was like, oh, my God, is it worth the risk for him? He's, he's starting to – Paige is starting to come into his own. He doesn't really need this. You know, is it better for him just to stay on his own track or to weave him into this WWE or NWO thing? And I, I did resist it. And I didn't resist it because it was a bad idea. I did resist it because I did not I wasn't concerned about the heat that I was going to get, you know, for showing favoritism. But I was afraid of just adding more heat on top of the heat that Paige already had. Because most people in the locker room were thought, not most people, many people in the locker room thought that he was getting a push he didn't really deserve. And I thought, is it, you know, what's what's the risk and reward in doing this? And I was leaning more towards it's too risky, and the reward isn't the upside isn't isn't quite there for me. And it was Scott Hall that came to me, and he, Scott Hall did, you know, say, I don't want to, I don't want to try to remember his exact words, but he essentially said. You know, I really feel strongly about this. This is the right thing to do, regardless of the circumstances. And I also remember him saying is, look, I can really get him over. If you let me do this, if you let him do this, it will take him to the next level. And that was probably the more convincing, you know, part of of Scott's petition wasn't, you know, I don't know if he said to me, I don't know if I want to work with a guy. Scott never threatened me like that. So I I find that hard to believe, but whatever. Um, But I, I do recall Scott being really passionate and believing and convincing me that he believed that doing this with Paige would take Paige to the next level and it would be a good thing overall. And we went ahead with it. You know, Paige will tell you, I don't know, I, I never read his book and, you know, I don't listen to a lot of his interviews. Um, but Paige will tell you that I was hard on him. I did not, not only did I not show him favoritism, I was probably harder on him because we were friends and when I say harder, probably not being as open to ideas from him and probably, you know, not being quite as, as enthusiastic about pushing him as he probably deserved it at certain points. Um, he had to work harder because he was my friend. Um, and this was one of the, this I think is a, a real manifestation of that, you know, situation at the time. Let's keep it moving because January is an interesting month. We have that you know, dome show, but we've also got a clash of the champions on the 21st and a pay-per-view just four days later, sold out 97. We'll talk about both of those shows. Luger's in a singles match with Scott Hall on the clash of the champions. And there's going to be a DQ because Kevin Nash and six interfere, but this is a weird situation because apparently there was a time cue problem. So as a result, they go to the finish, but they realize, wait a minute, we've got all this extra time. Let's restart the match. So they restart the brawl at least. Um, not the best match here. Meltzer gave it a star and a quarter says both of these guys are super over, but for whatever reason, the match just, uh, wasn't miss. What do you remember about this, uh, 
potential timing snafu here at clash uh it doesn't ring a bell for me at all it doesn't mean that it didn't happen just i I don't remember it. And like, you know, we said earlier, I didn't get the notes on this show, so I didn't go back and look at that match. Right. So it's hard. It's hard for me to just remember a detail like that. Have, now, maybe if I went back and looked at it, I might be able to remember, but I doubt it. If there was a timing issue and if they got a bad cue or they interpreted a cue incorrectly, whatever the case was, uh, and the match had to be restarted, I can certainly see why the match would come off as being awkward at best. Um but, you know, in terms of what happened and whose fault it was and how it happened, I, you know, I'd be making shit up if I tried to explain it. Let's talk about sold out. We've talked about this show a lot, but we'll briefly touch on it here. It's the first NWO themed pay-per-view. It's on a Saturday. Everything about it's a little weird. And the Steiners, who were WCW wrestlers, of course, actually beat the NWO, Scott Hall and Kevin Nash for the WCW belts. Two and a quarter stars. Of course, the, the finish comes when... There's a ref bump and Randy Anderson, who was in the crowd, jumps in the ring and makes the count, which leads to an interesting segment. The following uh, Monday, the show opens with you firing Randy Anderson. And uh, I know the show was about Scott Hall, but he's right in the middle of this and he's on headsets with Kevin Nash and man, you guys are at your heel best here. Are you not? I'll speak for myself. Some of my best work. And, and the following week was even better on Nitro. But that, yeah, creatively and, and as characters, at least, I think we were we were all kind of on fire at that point. Um, that that storyline, I think we've talked about it here before, but I think the following, you know, I fired Randy and I got back to the office in Atlanta, uh, uh, I think on Tuesday, and I got a call from Harvey Schiller. who asked me to call human resources because they were getting bombarded with phone calls from members of Randy Anderson's church who were absolutely appalled that I would fire Randy Anderson. And I had to explain to them that this was a storyline and all of that. And that's how believable it was and how well executed it was on everybody's part. Randy's and his family's included. Um, Everybody was on their game in a way that going back to what we talked about earlier on the show, similar to a a great Nick Bachwinkle promo when I was, you know, in my early to mid twenties watching wrestling, it was so real and so believable that (laughs) The, the the members of, of Randy's church actually blew, were blowing up phones at Turner Broadcasting. So it was just fucking awesome. I love that you're still fired up about it. I mean, when, and the, at the time when this is going on and you realize it's getting over to this level, not to be weird, but I mean, is that, I mean, you, you've said before that when I asked, hey, all the trash is coming in at Bash at the Beach, the whole Kogan turn has worked. People absolutely hate him now. They're furious. They're passionate. I asked, and you said, when I said, what was that like? What's going through your mind? And he said, I had an erection. I had a wood drawer, whatever the phrase you were. <laughs> when you see this working again here to this point where they're fielding real life calls about Randy Anderson, sort of the same thing. Like, holy shit, we're really on to something. Yep. Absolutely. I mean, we were, we, we were now living in the sweet spot from a storytelling point of view, we had the audience. I don't want to say in the palm of our hand, but we kind of, you know, and here's the other, I mean, as a performer and, you know, I I haven't performed in a long time, but I I still consider myself one, I guess, in terms of the way I think about things. But 
to be able to, first of all, ad lib. I mean, that whole thing was improv. It wasn't scripted. I mean, we knew what we were going to do, but there was no dialogue written down on a piece of paper. You know, we discussed the scene. We had an idea of how long we needed it to be. We knew what the beginning was. We knew what the end was. Everything else was ad libbed, you know, uh, in the scene on live television. And to be able to hit a beat in, 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 I'm not a golfer, but I can only imagine what it's like when you, you know, swing a golf club and you make that perfect contact with the ball and you know you're in your sweet spot and you see the ball just going down the fairway and in a perfect line going right where you wanted it to go and dropping right where you wanted it to drop. That has to be an amazing, almost addictive feeling, which is probably why golf is so popular. That's kind of what I imagine, you know, playing golf and being really good at it feels like. And that's what this moment felt like. When, when when you finally hit – when I say this moment, I mean overall, not just the one scene that you were talking about with Randy Anderson where I fired him. But when you when you finally connect with the audience and you're in that groove and you really feel like, okay, not only have we found the formula, but now we're starting to perfect it, that is – that's a feeling that's hard to get doing anything else. Three weeks. Uh, something that we haven't talked about a ton here on the show, but I kind of liked it felt super old school. It happened in February of 97. There's a, a sort of handy cam video of Scott Hall and Kevin Nash running the Steiner brothers off the road and rolling their car. There's some jump cuts and a ramp that's been clipped out of the video and a stunt man. I think maybe Hogan knew pretty creative idea. Uh, but it's used to explain that the Steiners are off the pay-per-view super brawl and the four corners match is now a triangle match once again with Ming and barbarian, but the nasty boys are no more. So it's public enemy and Harlem heat. Um, talk to us a little bit about this incident, how it came together. I mean, I know there's a little bit of heat cause I don't think you guys showed it on TV over and over, which may have. In those days, you certainly played the hits. And if this is our main story, we've got to show it over and over. But I think there was a little pushback on this one, was there not? Yeah, you're right. There was a lot of pushback internally. Um, and this was at a time when we typically didn't get a lot of pushback from standards and practices. They hadn't reared their ugly head yet. Uh, so it was very rare when uh, I'd get a call from Harvey Schiller, who had gotten pressure from somebody in turn of broadcasting to pull back on something, but evidently, I mean, there was enough adverse reaction to that scene because it was so believable. You know, if you go back and look at it, it was very well done. And again, the way we were presenting the product was to make it more believable, more real, do things outside of the confines of the arena itself, whether it be backstage or outside the arena, you know, we kind of opened up the, the stage, if you will. And in this case, we, opened it up to the point where we had Scott Hall and Kevin Nash apparently attempting to to murder the Steiner brothers in a in a motor vehicle. And I guess it was just too real. You know it 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 rubbed enough people wrong that we you're right, we had to pull it back. But it was a great stunt. Go back and look at it. Again, I ironically I'm still pushing the WWE um network, which I did before I went to work there and I'll continue to continue to do because it's a great resource to go back and look at some of this great content and things that really made a difference during this particular time and era, but go back and look at that. It was extremely well done. It was believable and almost too believable, I guess. 
So the pay-per-view is super brawl 97. We know the Steiners are out, but they weren't in this title match. Anyway, this is the giant and Lex Luger taking on Kevin Nash and Scott Hall. Excellent psychology here. Three and a half stars. Uh, Bischoff is going to be here. Six is going to be here. Typical shenanigans, but giant Lex Luger actually win the tag belts for like a day. Uh, but this was pretty well done. I thought, I mean, going into this, when you see two giants like Kevin Nash and, and Paul white, and then you got Lex Luger doesn't exactly have the reputation of being the worst or the best in-ring worker. It feels like Scott Hall is going to have to have his working boots on, but they still put together a pretty good match here. They do. And that's one of the things about Scott Hall that probably made him such a, a, a significant character for so long is when, when his head was right. And I'll, I'll often preface, you know, conversations when I'm, when I'm talking about Scott, Scott Hall and his abilities, um, I'll say the same thing when his head was right as a worker. Scott Hall, he, he wasn't necessarily Ric Flair. Ric Flair could have a match with anyone and make them look great. Scott Hall might not have been quite at that level as a Ric Flair, but he was damn close. When Scott Hall wanted to, when he was properly motivated and he wasn't, you know, under the influence and 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 all the things that go along with it, uh, and his head was on straight, he could he could have a match with just about anybody. And that's, I think, one of the reasons why on paper this might not have looked so great, but it ended up being a damn good match. And Scott was probably a, a big reason why. Let's go to the next pay-per-view, Uncensored 97. We've got three big teams here. Team WCW is the Giant, Lex Luger, and Scott Steiner. Team Piper is Chris Benoit, Piper, Jarrett, and McMichael. Team NWO is Hall, Nash, Savage, and Hogan. Woo! Uh, 19 minutes and 22 seconds. Not the best show. In fact... Meltzer would say this is one of those booked on acid main events. It's hard to follow all the rules, but the reaction at the end of the match when Sting comes down is one of the all-time great moments uh, in WCW history. This is also when Dennis Rodman's here. We've talked about this before in the archives, but really a special way to have Sting come in and get involved. And you know, you've got the extra added hoopla of Rodman being in the fold and all this talent, even though maybe the the wrestling wasn't great the feel in the arena had to be incredible for uncensored 97. Yeah. And that's again, you know, a perfect example. I think of what happens when people, um, analyze something that they really, I don't want to say don't understand. I'm not, I'm not suggesting that Dave Meltzer doesn't have an, an idea what a good match is. That that would be silly, but <laughs> as you have, you know, on a number of occasions when we refer back to something that was written or, or, or said, yeah, the match kind of sucked, but the reaction was one of the best reactions in the history of WCW. Well, what the fuck? That match was set up for that moment. The the just like a, a match is set up for a finish, and it was set up to get that reaction and to get that character over the way we got that character over. So, despite the fact that you know the actual technical wrestling inside of the ring might not have been up to anybody's standards or some people's standards, as was the case here with Meltzer, just tell me how the audience reacted when it was over. Tell me how the characters involved got over when the match was over. Was there more equity in that ring after the fact than there was before the fact? Then guess what? It was fucking perfect. If there was less equity in the ring after it was over, then it was a huge mistake. 
And in this case, if you're looking at what happened in that match and the reaction to it and where we built from that point forward, um, fuck Dave Meltzer. Okay. Uh, let's talk about Scott Hall here at the end of March. He's, um, well, things are not going well. Meltzer would say we have little in the way of details at press time, but Scott Hall 37 voluntarily checked himself into rehab this past week, missing house show main event bookings in Minneapolis on the 22nd and it's nitro booking on the 24th in Duluth on the live nitro it was acknowledged that Hall wasn't there, but no reason was given and there's no timetable for him to return. Um, it would also be written that he's going to be replaced by six in the main events teaming with Kevin Nash. And, um, quote, Nash had been very vocal of late about how he and hall had been selling too much and putting people over too much. So they knew you were going to have to end the show in this fashion. We're of course, talking about Kevin Nash taking on, uh, Lex Luger and the giant solo. It's weird how it all just sort of gels in and everybody sorts sort of tries to find a, a way to make the puzzle pieces fit. But the real situation is. Scott Hall's not doing awesome. And on the March 31st episode of Nitro, Nash would even say, Scott Hall's not here. He's taking care of stuff far more important than wrestling. And Meltzer would say a lot of the Hall situation has to do with his marriage, possibly disintegrating over the past two weeks. What can you tell us about what was going on behind the scenes here in late March with Scott Hall? Well, Clearly, I mean, the reporting was accurate. You know, he was missing shots. He was having a real difficult time. Uh, his personal life was falling apart. That's not untrue. Um, a lot of it had to do with his overall situation, which was his, he was an addict. And he was no longer able to control it. It was getting the better of him. And, you know, <laughs> I don't know what else to say about it. You know, it was pretty obvious, I think, to anybody in WCW as well as everybody outside of WCW. Scott didn't keep it a secret, and it was pretty evident. It was a, it was an issue. Don't really know else how, how else to to frame it. You're you're still advertising Scott Hall for all of his dates, though. It, are, are you doing this because you're still hopeful that he could be back at any time? Or do you have a timetable that maybe the newsletters just don't have as to when Scott will be back? Probably a little bit of both and add in that a lot of advertising is done so far in advance that some of that advertising was out there and you couldn't pull it back. Um, not saying that that was a hundred percent true, a hundred percent of the time, but it was often true a good percentage of the time. Uh, it wasn't like we were misleading anybody intentionally, but there was some question. Is this going to be a 30-day a situation? Is it going to be out for 30 days? Is it going to be out for 120 days? Is it going to be back next week? There was, you know, there was a lot of things we didn't know at the time, in addition to the fact that there was a lot of advertising already in the pipeline and out on the street, so to speak, uh, that we couldn't necessarily pull back. We're going to wind up this uh, first year for Scott Hall and WCW, but before we do, I do want to talk about something that was written in the newsletter regarding that March 31st nitro. Uh, there's a ton of behind the scenes heat regarding the different factions. There is a Kevin Sullivan faction and the Hulk Hogan faction of which Kevin Nash seems to be the most vocal member. The interview Nash did on the show on March 31st was totally not what it was supposed to be. 
Sullivan wanted him, wanted him to do a promo running down Hogan and Bischoff for not being there and going to the Rodman thing instead as an idea of a one week storyline to build up this week's ratings, which it did. But Sullivan also wanted him to run down Scott Hall, which he refused to do, apparently believing it was some kind of trick and instead praised Hall and did the rest of the interview talking about little Napoleon backstage giving orders. Of course, he's referring to Kevin Sullivan there. Uh, Meltzer would say all this shoot stuff makes for fascinating television for some people, but it's one thing if it's Bret Hart and Shawn Michaels using it as ammo to sell tickets for an eventual match. But to do it that way and waste TV time airing real stuff on a fake TV show is kind of unprofessional. What do you remember about Kevin Sullivan going off or, or Kevin Nash rather going off script and referring to Kevin Sullivan as little Napoleon here? I don't remember the incident specifically, but I do remember the, the kind of time frame and the time period and the, the Scott Hall situation and the, and the pressure that it, it put on everybody. Uh, it, it probably was true. I'm not going to suggest that it's bullshit. Um, I, my guess is just listening to it, it probably did happen. Um, but that's again, you know, one of the dangers you you, know, you run into when you're when you're improving and you're you're using real life into certain situations and then add to it <clears throat> very raw, very real emotions. Things can and and did get out of control at times. And this is probably one of those situations. Scott, Kevin, and I, look, I, I know both Scott Hall and Kevin Nash far better now, and we're still good friends, uh, the three of us. But I, I know them and who they are uh, far more now than I, than I ever have, and certainly more than I did in 97. Um, Kevin in, in no way would have put heat on Scott or, or talked about him derisively in any way, shape, or form in the situation that Scott was in. Nor should anybody who knows anybody anything uh, about someone with an addiction problem. That's the last time that you want to make someone feel abandoned or, or, or embarrass them or humiliate them or trigger them into either giving up or – or you know, falling backwards and into a rut again that they shouldn't be in. So I can understand why Kevin didn't want to do it. If if Kevin Nash, if Sullivan did want him to, yeah, it was probably a bad choice. I understood why he would probably want to do that because that's what we were doing at the time. Um, from his storyline with, you know, his ex-wife, and there were so many things. The firing of Randy Anderson, although that wasn't real, we tried to make it believe, make people believe it was, and. Yeah, I think this was probably a situation where, where Sullivan was asking too much at the wrong time. And if Kevin went out and shot on on Sullivan, yeah, I understand why he did it. Doesn't excuse it, but I can see that it, I can understand why it happened and how it happened. Let's talk about how Scott Hall comes back. He does a run in on the April 21st Nitro. He's going to run in against Flair, Piper, and Kevin Green. Of course, we're trying to sl- set up the Slamboree six man. But talk to me about you getting the call that, Hey, I'm ready to come back to work. Or do you guys initiate the call and say, we really need you on this date? No, we didn't put any pressure on Scott. You know, every, the first couple of times Scott had to go into treatment, I paid for it. Uh, and we supported him and I made sure that he didn't, he knew that he didn't have to worry about his job being waiting for him or, or waiting for him when he came back. So, but there's no way I would have called him and said, Hey, we need you regardless of where you are in your life, regardless of, you know, how treatment is going, we need you on this show. That would have never, ever happened, uh, in, in, in any lifetime. Uh, 
We got this call probably from Barry Bloom at the time. I think Barry was handling Scott and, you know, Scott was ready to come back to work. So we, we made it work. And of course we're setting up the big slamboree show, which we've talked about before on one side, you got local football hero, Kevin green, Roddy Piper, and Ric Flair on the other Scott Hall, Kevin Nash, six, they go 17 minutes and 20 seconds, two and a half star match, but doing a match like this in North Carolina with a member of the Carolina Panthers. I mean, this just makes all the sense in the world, doesn't it? It does. It was a great, you know, great opportunity. Perfect storm, so to speak. We've, uh, we've talked about this match before and there were some hurt feelings coming into this, uh, because Hall and Nash have, are going to suggest that the other member of the six man needs to be six. And they're looking for who this third member could be because Hulk Hogan is doing a movie during this time. So we need another member of the NWO, but apparently when Hall and Nash suggested six Flair and Piper, uh, balked at this with the idea that he's not big enough or a big enough star and size has been a very popular topic this past week in wrestling. Do you remember the reluctance for Flair and Piper to have six on the other side? I do not. I'm not even sure that that was true. I, I find that hard to believe. Look, Piper and Flair may have had issues with the whole NWO idea for, for valid reasons, but I don't think anybody that I ever heard of um, would have ever thought having six in a ring was a bad idea. If, if anything, that's the guy you really wanted to work with because he was a bumping machine. So is Scott Hall, Kevin Nash, not so much. <laughs> and if, if I were, you know, either Rick or Roddy, God, who do you want to be in a ring with? Somebody's going to fly around and sell for you or, or somebody who's physically bigger. Uh, I'd want the guy that could sell for me, especially if, you know, if, if I wasn't a massive individual myself. We've talked about this match already. It's available in the archives, but this is the match where, uh, we're going to see uh, an incident take place after the match. And I think a lot of folks probably assume that, oh, this means the NWO is going over, but that's not the case. Uh, Piper would knock out referee, Randy Anderson, which would lead Nick Patrick to come in. And at that exact same time, the legal men are Rick Flair and Scott Hall. Flair puts Hall in figure four. Piper puts Nash in a sleeper and green power slam six. And with all three down. Patrick counts Hall shoulders down and the pop is deafening for the clean finish here in Charlotte that our hometown heroes have bested the NWO. But apparently there's some miscommunication about the match and Piper and Nash have a bit of an incident. And we've talked about that available in our archives, which you should definitely check out. And we're going to check out today on uh, year one of Scott Hall in WCW man we covered a lot of ground today and it's hard to imagine that was just his first year in the company. Yeah. Two, uh, two hours and we barely scratched the surface. So stay tuned for Scott hall part two, another time next week, we're going to go back in time to 1997, where we'll talk about Halloween havoc, 1997, uh, again, a special show. Halloween havoc was certainly a top priority for WCW. We just talked about 96 where you felt like you were at the height of your creativity here. We've got Hogan on top again, this time in, in a steel cage match that the WWF would call age in a cage when he's going to wrestle Roddy Piper one year after Piper debuted here at Halloween havoc. We've also got Randy Savage working with DDP six is going to be in the corner of Scott hall when he's going to wrestle Lex Luger with Larry Zabisco as a special guest referee. 
Kurt is working with Ric Flair, Jacqueline and Disco Inferno. Lots to talk about there. Alex Wright and Steve McMichael. And there is somebody popping up here that maybe will ring a bell. Ray Mysterio and Andy Guerrero title versus mask, arguably the best match of the year. Chris Jericho and the Booker of New Japan today. What a small world it is. And Yuji Nagata in there with Ultimo Dragon. What a great show on paper. We'll talk about the execution next week. What are you looking forward to talking about next week for Halloween Havoc 97? Oh, all of it. You know, just listening to you run down that card, you know, I would have to go back. I'm going to have to go back and watch it. I just certainly don't remember uh, in my mental archives. So I'm going to go back and watch it. But again, we were at our. You know, if not our peak, damn close to it during this period of time, one of the more significant pay-per-views of the year for us at this point in time. And just, you know, hearing your rundown of some of the matches on that card, I would say arguably some of the best talents in that era and certainly talent that is, you know, still important today. So I I think it's uh, it's going to be a fun show to talk about. It's absolutely going to be a fun show to talk about. Tell your friends to uh, hit the subscribe button. Come check us out. If you'd like to participate or you have a question about next week's show, by all means, fire those questions away at 83 weeks on Twitter. He's at E. Bischoff and I'm at Hans Conrad. Oh, wait, I guess we should. I guess people are waiting, right? They want to, they want to hear from you, Eric. You've been all over the news for the last week or so. Do you want to make some sort of statement here or clear up the rumor and innuendo? Uh, you know, I'm not going to spend too much time clearing up the rumor and innuendo because it's out there. And I think people, you know, are, are smart enough to see through, you know, the bullshit that they read, uh, in dirt, on, 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 you know, dirt sites and, and that kind of thing. I, and I don't, I honestly, I just don't want to get negative. Um, I, I'm going to say, you know, a couple things and, and I'll have a lot more to say at some point in time, but you know, my feelings right now are number one, I was really grateful for the opportunity you know, to, to work at WWE. And it was an opportunity. It didn't work out the way I wanted it to work out. It clearly didn't work out the way Vince McMahon wanted it to work out, but that, that happens. And I'm not taking any of it personally, um, professionally, you know, taking a hard look at it and, and thinking it through, but I'm more than anything, I'm just grateful for the opportunity. And part of the reason I am is, um, you know, I had a chance to work with a great, great team of people. You know, the, the writing staff for SmackDown in particular, as well as a, a lot of the other writers who were uh, on Raw, um, they are a very, very talented and v- unbelievably hardworking and dedicated group of people. And just to have the opportunity to to work with people like that in and of itself was worth this experiment. You know, I, I didn't come here thinking I was going to be in WWE for five or ten years. Uh, I looked at it as a relatively short-term opportunity, meaning two to three years. I didn't think it would be quite this short-term, but sometimes that happens. You know, WWE is a, is a is a great company with a very uh, defined culture and process, and you know, I didn't necessarily fit into it, and that's just the way it is. Um, I'm not sad. I'm not disappointed. I'm not angry. I'm not any of those things. Just, uh, looking forward to, you know, the next opportunity, wherever and whenever that may be. And kind of digging the idea of packing up the truck and getting back to Wyoming. So all in all, very positive. I've got nothing but great things to say about the people at WWE and the company as a whole. It's an amazing company. Uh, and like I, I've said this before, before I went back to work there, you know, from the, 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 the production team, I mean, just everybody that I came into contact with at WWE is not only incredibly talented, but 
you know, hardworking and extremely dedicated to to the work that they do. So I, I was grateful and I'm grateful for the opportunity to be a part of it, even if it was for a very short time. I guess we should uh, briefly um, address the the narrative that you and Bruce Pritchard are angry with each other and not on speaking terms and you're furious that this has all happened and blah, blah, blah. I know different. I'm sure you probably want to address that. Well, first of all, you know, I've stayed away from social media just because I know the kind of, you know, diarrhea, digital diarrhea that, that exists there at a time like this. Let, let me just, I didn't, uh, this is the first time hearing that this is, that narrative is out there. And if it is, I think it is a perfect example. If there's anything out there that suggests that Bruce and I are anything other than the best of friends and that I'm fully supportive of him, I, I think defines the bullshit and, and like I say, the digital diarrhea that dirt sheets and the douchebags that write them live off of because nothing could be further from the truth. As a matter of fact, and I know that you know this because when I was at – Lori and I went over to Bruce's and Stephanie's last night for dinner as they were moving into their new house. And I think Bruce took a picture and he might have sent it to you after we had dinner. I mean nothing is – I mean that is such nonsense. Bruce is the reason – Bruce is probably the reason I got the opportunity in the first place. I can tell you that Bruce had nothing to – this is a decision that Vince McMahon made based on whatever was going through his mind. And I am – a thousand percent sure that anything Bruce Pritchard said had nothing to do with that. Bruce is one of my closest friends. He's going to remain one of my closest friends. And anybody that suggests otherwise should look in the mirror and ask themselves why they feel they have to do what they do when they spread these kind of, as you put it, rumors and innuendo. I'm just going to call it straight up dirt sheet bullshit. Because if you feel the need to have to do that kind of thing and affect other people's lives when there's absolutely no basis and truth for it, you're kind of a fucked up individual. And I know I just said I didn't want to get negative, but that's the kind of thing that, you know, people why I have, you know, I, I feel so strongly about the dirt sheets and, you know, we jokingly or, you know, passively call it rumor and innuendo. That rumor and innuendo has impact on people's lives. And in this case, you know, the fact that people are saying these things about, you know, Bruce doesn't impact my life because it doesn't change the way I feel about Bruce. And Bruce is smart enough and seasoned enough. He's probably not going to let it bother him either. But it's just wrong, you know, to make shit up like that is just wrong. And I encourage all the people who think, you know, that I'm wrong about beating up on Meltzer. And I know you and I, Conrad, have had discussions about this and, you know, why I feel so strongly about some of the things that that, that we read online and not always just Dave Meltzer. We pick on him a lot because he comes up in our show a lot, but across the boards, you know, if you read it online, 99, 90% of the time, it's fucking bullshit. It's just bullshit. And that's a perfect example of, of what I mean. Well, and, and we should mention too, you have a pretty good sense of humor about this. Uh, somebody tagged you recently. This was a pretty common joke on Tuesday when you were laying out a social, but somebody finally got your attention with an 83 days, uh, logo sort of <laughs> mocking up 83 weeks and you put it over on Twitter and said it was hilarious. So I, I'm glad to see that, you know, I think a lot of people are assuming you're going to be upset about this, but 
very quickly, we started promoting on Twitter that, Hey, by the way, we still have a fired shirt and you know what? We may have an 83 day shirt or some other silly stuff. Hell, we may have an 83 days podcast. (laughs) (laughs) We got a whole another year and a half worth of content there. (laughs) Yeah. It's uh, it's wild. Listen, I appreciate you addressing it and, and taking the time to just sort of clear it up. What's next for you? Are you, um, heading right back to Wyoming or when, when are you and the missus making the big trip home? Well, you know, I had a, a, a couple projects, one big one that I was involved in before I came to WWE. So I'm you know, going to jump back right, right back into that. Uh, we decided, as a matter of fact, just before you and I started recording this podcast, that rather than going right back to Wyoming, uh, that we were going to pack up here on Stanford around the end of November and jump in the truck with the dog and head down to Clearwater, Florida where our son and daughter-in-law live. We're going to spend a month down in Florida and the holidays uh, with our, our son and uh, daughter-in-law and our daughter, Montana, and just uh, enjoy some Florida weather for a month and then head back to Wyoming. So it's, yeah, it's going to be a fun month and a half or so. And again, going into the holidays and hanging down in Florida with our kids is, is going to be a great time. So that's what we're looking forward to the most. Last question, then I'll leave you alone about it. If you had it to do over again, would you? Yep. Yep. No regrets. None, none whatsoever. Like I said, I, you know, I don't, I don't, I'm a, I, there's a reason why I hate to talk about some of this stuff. And it's because I don't want to give people the wrong impression. When I took this job, I knew what the odds were of it being a long-term opportunity for me. And, and I, I, I let me just say it this way. I'm not surprised. I'm disappointed. Not going to lie. I am disappointed. I would have liked to have met, you know, Vince McMahon's expectations, and I would have liked for it to, uh, to to have been a longer run than it was. I, I'd be completely dishonest if I didn't admit that. But at the same time, I'm not completely surprised either. You know, I went into it with my eyes wide open, and I knew what the challenges would be. Um, and like I said, it didn't work out. So, I, but I'm not. I, I yes, I would do it over again in a heartbeat. You know, and I, I might be, might have a different view of it coming in if it was a complete do over and not that I would want that opportunity because I'm actually, I think it worked out for the best for a lot of reasons, but, um, you know, I, like I said, I, my overwhelming feeling is a very positive one, which I know is going to sound weird to people, but, you know, between the relationships I developed, the people that I've met, you know, the opportunity to work, you know, as closely with Vince as I did. And like I said, a couple of weeks ago, he is a fascinating guy. You know, he doesn't have all the answers. He's not going to be right. A hundred percent of the time. He's intense. He's a lot of things. Um, but, but not the least of which is fascinating. And just, you know, to have that opportunity was, I think worth the trip. Well, and we appreciate you guys taking the trip with us today. As we talked about Scott Hall's first year in WCW, we'll be back next week and every week right here. On 83 Weeks with Eric Bischoff. John brings his skewed sense of humor. Jeff brings tips to cut strokes off your next round. Together, it's those weekend golf guys. They'll pay a lot of money to PXG and Titleist and Callaway and on and on and on. How many yards do you think you're going to pick up with that extra driver? I think I can get an extra 5 to 10. What if I give you 15 to 20? (laughs) You pay me more. Jeff Smith teaches on the sliding scale. (laughs) Those weekend golf guys, the podcast, part of the Believe Network. Just search B-L-E-A-V on YouTube or wherever you listen.